from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy, where the doctor is always in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hey, thanks for joining us this morning on this chilly afternoon. We're going to be talking about all kinds of health issues that affect you most. That's right. We've got a whole hour to discuss your health concerns, so give us a call today. We would love to hear from you. Share your comments and questions with us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're taking your calls today about the topics that are most important to you. That's right. The health of you and your family is always of utmost importance to us, and that's what sort of drives the content of the program. So we'd love to hear from you this morning. You can reach us by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Got a little bit of a cold today, so I'm just telling people in the booth, I sound a little bit like Don Cornelius of those, uh, if you remember Don Cornelius on, uh, it was Saturday mornings, I think, for the Soul Train. That's right. (laughs) We're going to be about about an octave lower this morning um, with with a little bit of sniffles from from now and again, so I apologize for that. They're going to wipe this... uh, this uh, booth down when I come out of here today. They're going to spray it down. they got all kinds of stuff to keep uh, from passing these things along. Hey, I hope everybody is staying warm in the cold. Now, Mississippi, this is this is cold for us, right? I mean, in the 20s. But uh, I know, you know, if you've got anybody or you got any travel going up to the Midwest, you might want to rethink that uh, if you can or if you can't and you really need to go you're going to have to take a lot more clothes than you're used to or buy no, uh, clothes. And don't get outside. I mean, there's, they have negative double digits. That's really, 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 really cold. There's uh, places in the Midwest that are colder than Antarctica right now. So that is incredibly cold. But it will freeze your skin and freeze your lung tissues in a second. I used to have a buddy of mine. He's been on the program before, Dr. Chris Henry, who's a orthodontist and a um, pediatric um, orthodontist and pediatric uh, dentist. Uh, used to live in Fairbanks, and he would tell me these stories when he would go running, and it would be minus forty outside. I don't know how he would do that, but he said you could feel the gel in your eyes. It's called the vitreous get sort of solid. And that just doesn't sound, it sounds like something that somebody would torture James Bond in in a movie or something like that. So it's not anything to take lightly. So if you're headed up that way, you want to prepare for that because we don't, we don't know about cold in Mississippi for the most part. But man, if you're going to Chicago, bundle up and don't get outside. Make sure you uh, take some precautions. But around here, too, you want to do that. Uh, certainly um, colder weather and cold snaps in particular, the swings that we uh, that we normally have from one, uh, one extreme to the other, can sometimes set off uh, different uh, conditions, particularly in the lungs. So if you have COPD or asthma uh, or chronic bronchitis, you might want to uh, just take a, take care about that. Make sure that you have, if you take an inhaler, uh, particularly a rescue inhaler like albuterol, that you are combivent, that you have that on hand, uh, just in case um, you know that um, that you need it. Should you have some bronchospasm or tightness in your chest? All right, we're going to go to David first in Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Hey, how you doing today? Good. Thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call. I got a question about this uh, supposedly. Um, 
Miracle Cure All CBD oil, hemp oil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it? Is there? It's like the Wild West. It has me reminisce of the old uh, snake, snake oil stuff. <laughs> Uh, my question is: Is it safe? Is it, has it been any scientific studies about what it, what you can use it for, and what is the short and long term effects? And also, if you uh, uh, take this stuff, would it show up on a positive on an alcohol drug screen test? Yeah, a lot of good questions there with CBD oil. So CBD oil is the newest thing. You're right; it's everywhere, and you you described it, David. Uh, that everybody says, "Hey, this will cure everything: chronic pain, uh, rheumatism." Uh, diabetes, uh, all over the, uh, the place. Now, we do know that it is uh, useful, uh, and there have been some small studies that looked at it in, uh, like, uh, um, epilepsy in children. In fact, UMC is one of the sites. Dr. Brad Ingram, who is a pediatric uh, neurologist at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, has a grant to study the effects of CBD oil just to see what it does for those uh, for those kids who have epilepsy and are not able to be treated otherwise. So some of them have terrible seizures uh, that uh, that can't be um, that can't be controlled with some of the routine medications. So that's just one thing that it's being studied for. But you're right; it is being studied for a lot of different things. Now it's fairly early. I don't know a lot of people are going to jump on that and say, "No, no, no! It'll cure this. It'll cure that." But I'm talking about the really thorough studies that uh, can be done to look at the effects, look at side effects. What does it do to cognition? A lot of people are, you know, how do you think when you're taking this? Is it going to impair that? Do we need to be concerned if you're driving? All kinds of concerns. And, of course, the standardization of it is another thing. As with all uh, non-prescription medications, you really don't, and some prescription medications, actually, you really don't have the consistency of dosing from, you know, one um, preparation to another and one company to another even. So there's a lot of variation there. So you want that to be the same. You know, you want to know what you're getting. A lot of people, you know, they may market CBD oil, but there may be very little active CBD oil in that. You mentioned a drug screen. So it is possible that you might have a overlap, but it's not as possible. I'll say that. So it depends on, on how you're testing for that. So a lot of people, particularly with the newer uh, drug screens that are uh, recommended, like the, they're called just a UDS, a urine drug screen, there's a basic one. And without getting into too many of the details, basic one just to test just a little bit. And it's not... Um, it's, it doesn't like, uh, the sensitivity is pretty, you know, pretty high on that to catch things, but it's not very specific. So there's a confirmatory test that can, you know, go down to the nth degree and say, okay, this is what you're taking. This is the type of medication. This is the metabolite of the, of the drug. Um, so I, you know, I'll have to, I'll have to ask that specifically. I've got some toxicology buddies that, uh, help develop that, uh, test, but, um, uh, I'll have to. That's a, a good question from my friend Patrick Kyle. So I'm going to ask him that. He's a, a researcher at UMC that uh, has looked at that. But uh, I would be careful with it. Hey, tell your doctor anytime that you're doing anything like that. If you if you're trying some of these things, it may be that it may interact with other medications that you're taking or not that good for what you're you know what you're trying to treat. But uh, you want to you want to keep them aware of it. And I've got a lot of patients that um, have said, "Hey, I'm going to try out this CBD oil," and you know, I'll usually say, "You know, be careful. You know, make sure that you you have." There's there's a couple of actually I've got this from a patient. There's a couple of places, uh, Colorado and California, that actually s- sort of uh, standardize that. And I don't have those on hand, but uh, you know, in, in the community of CBD oils, I'm sure you can you can find that out. But I would say the jury's still out on the specifics. The best one I know right now is that epilepsy study, the seizure study in kids. So, David, that's that's what uh, that's the skinny on CBD oil. Well, you uh, you you answered one question I was just going to you about. Uh, they're advertising quite rapidly. Uh, stores are popping up here, there, and yonder, giving out free samples. And uh, my quick, uh, you mentioned about the interaction with drugs, because this stuff may be. Uh, uh, be toxic or something or have toxic uh, side effects if you were taking some other prescription drugs interactions there's a possibility now it, it would it would have to be determined you know what you're taking and then you know and again what's in that cbd oil and it may not even be the cbd oil itself it may be the the carrier uh you know the the what it's what it's in 
Um, but yeah, anything like that, just because something is an herbal or supplemental or homeopathic uh, medication does not mean it can't interact with others. A good example of that is ginkgo biloba. So ginkgo is a tree, real pretty in the fall, um, and uh, they have sort of yellowish leaves. But they make a product from ginkgo that's supposed to help with cognitive function, how well you think. Uh, Alzheimer's patients have have taken that, and um, but but it does interfere with platelets, uh, the stickiness of platelets, which help with blood clotting. So if you're already on a blood clotter, it can make it worse. Uh, you can have some, you know, easily bleed. You, you really need a doctor or a pharmacist or both that really understand those uh, side effects and talk to you about that. So that's it's a complex area, David. And, you know, I, I'm usually one to say if it's not going to hurt you, that's fine to try it. Because anecdotally, a lot of people say, hey, this really helps me, uh, you know, feel better, helps me get to the point where I can go and do the things that I want to do. But um, you got to be careful with it. All right, David, thank you for calling about uh, CBDL. We're going to be seeing more of that. We're going to be hearing more of that, particularly as it relates to seizures. So it's certainly something to uh, to look at. People are like, man, aren't you going to get high with that? A little bit different. Can't get high like marijuana. It's, a, it's akin to that. But uh... <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about what is burning on your mind that's right what are things that you want to ask about today the number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org we'll be right back after this break This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call one 877 MPB ring. That's one 672 7464 or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy and talking about all kinds of stuff this morning. Got a couple of email questions that people have sent in. One about arthritis. We'll get to that in between callers. Uh, but first, we want to take your calls, the number to call this morning. If you have a question about your health or the health of a loved one or a neighbor, who else? Anybody, actually. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. A lot of things out there that, uh, you know, we, we have to remember that a lot of medications or just about every medication a um, hundred years ago started because somebody noticed an effect of something. If you take penicillin, uh, for instance, uh, they noted that the mold that grew in a Petri dish where they were growing bacteria, a certain mold um, caused the bacteria that were growing on that around it to die. And that's the penicillium mold. So that's where they made that from to begin with. So all these accidents that happen, they go and study that. Now, you can't give somebody mold. They'd probably get sick if you just gave them the raw penicillin. So it had to be purified. It had to be standardized. But, um, you know, that's one of the things right around the, uh, you know, the time of World War II that um, totally decreased a lot of the complications from wound infections and uh, it was just a godsend uh, to uh, for both sides, actually, but but a lot for the allies. All right, let's go to Tim in Bogalusa. Thanks, Tim, for calling. Hey, Doc, a good friend of mine, I think his cardiologist, tell him, I guess, don't drink green tea. It's causing or creating too much vitamin K or thickening the blood. It's, what what do you know of that? I've never yeah. heard of that. 
So vitamin K is a is a vitamin. Uh, it's a fat soluble vitamin, but it is um, it is used by the body's uh, clotting system. So we have clotting factors, and there are a number of those that depend upon vitamin K to be produced. And um, it's fairly short too. Like our liver produces those, and um, it can uh, if you don't get enough vitamin K in, those factors can go down. Now the problem probably that has to do with uh, this guy, your friend, uh, whose cardiologist told him that he's probably on a blood thinner. He's probably on Coumadin, which is or warfarin. So that's one of the more common ones. Uh, that is used to impede that system. And it basically it blocks vitamin K synthesis. So if you eat foods, consume foods that have a lot of vitamin K, then your blood's not going to be thin enough and it'd be more likely to clot. So it's very, you know, free. you may have friends that are on Coumadin or you're on Coumadin. There's probably a ton of people on Coumadin listening right now. And they're like, yeah, that's right. I can't eat greens. I can't eat all kinds of stuff that has vitamin K in it because that will interfere with the medication so green tea is too you wouldn't think it you think well this stuff's pretty you know halfway clear but um it does it, it can interfere with that so that's exactly right okay. all right what what about uh i think the same doctor may be telling him anything over a thousand vitamin c way too much or something so i yeah. got other doctors friends that take 10,000. <laughs> right. Vitamin C is one that hasn't been studied a lot. We know that if you don't get enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. You know, that's that's the classic one. That was the one that, uh, that's why British British uh, naval uh, off, yes, right, limeys, right. But, so they would take <laughs> limes on the ship that had, that were high in vitamin C and they'd eat those to replenish their stores. But the mega, mega, mega doses, that really hasn't been shown to really do anything to prevent the common cold or, you know, that there's all kinds of things. Usually they have to do with the immune system that people say. But as long as your, you know, diet is fairly robust, and that's that's my take on a lot of these is eat a well-balanced diet that's high in fruits and vegetables, fresh fruits if you can get them, locals better than, you know, going all the way across the country. And that's going to be seasonal, obviously. Um, so if you can do that, you're going to get most, if not all, of the nutrients that you need. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Tim, for calling from Bogalusa. Had a roommate uh, from Bogalusa in college, Chad Sauls. All right. Let's go to um, Mark in Past Christian. Good morning, Mark. Hey, Mark. Good morning. Or Mark. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. Good morning. Uh, I picked up an upper respiratory infection back in the middle of December. Uh, ended up taking some doxycycline for about 10 days, and, and that cleared up most of the symptoms, but I still got this persistent productive cough, and I'm wondering, I'm almost a month out with this thing, and I'm, I'm still uh, suffering with that. I was wondering if you've got any suggestions for which way to go with that. Sure. Is this? Do you have any um, chronic medical conditions that involve your lungs, like asthma or COPD? Do not. Okay. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this probably wasn't bacterial, and it's probably viral. Uh, the viral illnesses can cause a, a post-infectious cough sometimes a month or two even afterwards, and one in particular is RSV. Kids are more likely to get RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, but this is the season to get it. But adults can get that too. It doesn't have to be that one. There's not anything you can do about it. You can treat the cough. Uh, and in fact, one of the homeopathic things that you can do that has been studied to decrease cough is honey. Uh, so you can take a teaspoon of honey at night, uh, either by itself or with something else, and it helps to uh, to cut down on cough. But that's the main. Most people are going to say, you know, at night, that's the time that I have it. The other thing would be, Mark, is to make sure that you don't have anything else that's causing it at the same time. So a lot of patients, they'll be started on a new medication, particularly something like an ACE inhibitor or they might have an allergy to something at the same time that doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, with the um, you know with with the infection. But some of those viruses, what they do is they sort of strip off the lining of the airways, and it causes the airways to be very sensitive to hypersensitive. Cough is good, you know. If you think about it, if something goes down the wrong hole, we say, or the, the your airway, you're supposed to cough it out. Coughing is good for you. But if it's really irritated, that reflex just gets stimulated over and over and over and over again. So I, my doc, go ahead. My doc, my doc said to call, contact him in about another, uh, I guess it was six weeks if, if this thing didn't clear itself up. And I'm just yep. wondering what's the, likely, what's the likelihood that my body's going to be able to take care of this. If you're not having any other symptoms like shortness of breath with it and it's just a cough, it, it's likely that it will clear up. 
but he's he's saying that just because of what I said that basically you can have a cough up to six to eight weeks, two months even, uh, you know, at the after you have that infection. So that's why. Now, if you were short of breath, if you were yeah. coughing up a lot of stuff, like if it was just nasty, you know, clots of yellowish, brownish type stuff, that would be something else. So, but that's that's my guess why I said that. Like we take antibiotics for a bacterial infection, is there anything you can take for a viral infection? There's not, it, unless you have something like the flu. So the flu virus, we have specific medications like Tamiflu, but for others, we don't. And um, it's just very hard to develop that. I kid around with people and say, you know, if I, if I could find a, a cure for this, I mean, I'd retire rich and uh, spread the wealth. But uh, unfortunately, we don't, Mark. We just we treat the symptoms. We have to treat the symptoms. All right, right. So I ride this thing out and hope my body maybe uh, time in a shower, breathing steam or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Human environments tend to make it work. That's what I'm doing. That's what I did this morning. Actually, was spend a little extra time in the shower with uh, with my cough. So that's uh, that's exactly what I would do. All right. Thank you, sir. Sure. Thanks for calling. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you could email us at remedy at mpbonline dot org. Let's go to Stephen on the road. Good morning, Stephen. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, you're speaking to a miracle. Seven years ago, my aortic valve exploded, according to the doctor. Mm. And uh, I had to have valve replacement, open heart surgery, and uh, here I am today, very, very healthy and very grateful. However, uh, I do go to a Coumadin clinic. You were talking about Coumadin. Right. I go to a Coumadin clinic, and she tells me that uh, eating greens is okay in a limited amount if I eat the same green amount of greens this week that I ate last week. That's exactly right. Right. There are two schools of thought on this. There's one that you just eliminate all vitamin K from the diet, and then you you dose the medication that way. Uh, The other one is as long as you're consistent about what you're eating and you're not eating just a ton of stuff with vitamin K in it, then that's okay. What they'll do is they will increase the dose of that Coumadin to adequately block, you know, every time you go to the COAG clinic, um, you, they're going to check something called an INR, and that's a measure of how thin or thick your blood is, if you want to think of it that way. So, Stephen, that's right. So it's you can do that, and a lot of people just don't like to do that. They're like, they're, hey, we're going to do it by the book. Honestly, I like that way that you're at your COAG clinic, where they say you can eat a little bit if you're just saying, hey, i got to have my greens. Um so, so yeah, that's smart, as long as it's consistent and in small quantities. Well, I am so happy you heard that, that you said that, because that's what I heard from her, and it just reinforces that I'm on the right track. I go once a month, of course. They want the number to be between two and three. Right. And fortunately, every time it is, uh, one time it got a little high, but she adjusted some stuff and did some stuff. But in any event... Uh, I'm just happy that you reinforce what she says, and I appreciate you very much. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, you're welcome, Stephen, and uh, good luck to you. Uh, and thanks, thanks, man, for sharing that miracle. That's awesome that you didn't have any complications from that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Sure. All right, we're going to go to Kay in Memphis, Tennessee. Good morning, Kay. Thanks for calling. Are you there, uh, Kay? Yeah, oh, yes, I'm here. Okay. Thank you for calling. Yes, thank you. Thank you for taking the call. And uh, I'm calling my teacher again, <laughs> teacher, because when I have a question, I can get to you more readily than I can to my any of my my docs. Anyway, you know, I, I, you mentioned the word teacher. Then the Latin derivative that we get the word doctor for means to teach. So oh, okay. that's that's uh, you know that's I've always said you know I'm and I'm an I'm an educator. So I mean I love to teach. But, um, you know, all doctors should teach if you think about it. I mean, everybody should teach their patients, teach themselves, teach others. So uh, so that's that's good that you brought that up. What's your question? Yeah, well, I am, I am originally a teacher, uh, but I never taught. I, I could teach English in Mississippi, but I chose to go into the medical field and said, you probably remember I'm a retired medical social worker. So Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I was teaching then, you know teaching the patients and sometimes teaching the doctors. But anyway, let that be. 
what I want to ask you about is um, with my blood pressure, I don't have a problem with it or, ordinarily. Well, I'll put it this way. I have a prescription that's from the ancient ages, and I still have it, and have some, and I figured I have to take one about once every four days. Now, because I, I check my blood pressure every, well, twice a day, and I know how to check it. So, uh, what, do, I, do I really have hypertension? What What's going on that I just have it, uh, you know, maybe once a week or something, maybe maybe a couple of times a week, and I check it every morning when I'm quiet and every afternoon late when I'm quiet. Mm-hmm. And uh, So yeah. what's going on that, I, <clears throat> that it is so sporadic? Yeah, blood pressure is like that. So basically... I, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm also 88 years old, so okay. that may have something to do with it. 88 years young. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's common at that age. So what happens is the systems that help regulate our blood pressure, sometimes as we age, they don't work as well as they should, and you'll have more variation. Now, anybody, whether you have high blood pressure or not, can have up to 20% variation in the blood pressure, and it's going to be high at predicted times. If you are in traffic, uh, 5 o'clock, going home, um, or if it's uh, sort of icy conditions out as we've had lately in some parts of Mississippi, that may increase your blood pressure. And, and, and it probably would, just about anybody. If you're in pain, all kinds of things, if you're sick. So blood pressure does go up and down. It goes up and down when you're asleep. It goes down about 20%. And then when you're awake, it comes, it goes back up and sort of peaks for most people in the mid-afternoon. Now, it is common as you get older that you can have these fluctuations. And Kay's probably in the minority of patients that um, where you have to take a blood pressure medication every other day or every third day or every fourth day. And um, that's okay as long as your physician has, you know, has advised you to do that. Most of the blood pressure medications are not designed to take right when it goes up. Like if it goes up really quickly... It, there's not a whole lot of them out there where you take it because it's going to last after you take it about 24 hours with most of the of the usual ones. But if they, you know, if they have said, "Hey, you know what? We think this is this is about a, a good um, time period in between dosing of three or four days. That's fine." The other thing as you get older that you have to watch out for is a blood pressure getting too low. And most of the time you're going to know that because you're going to get lightheaded, particularly when you go from a lying position to sitting to standing. Um, everybody gets that to some extent if they're jump up, but if it's pronounced, you get dizzy or lightheaded when you're walking around, you may want to get your blood pressure checked during those times and they may have to back off the dose of it. It is not uncommon to have to back off blood pressure that you've been totally stable on for 20 or 30 years once you get up into your 70s or 80s. So, um, so that's what's going on, I, I think, Kay, is that that variation who knows? I mean, some people can be feeling just fine and their blood pressure is up, but it may not have to uh, be to what's going on in your life. It may be tied more to just your systems that are regulating that aren't quite working well. So that's why. Okay. Hey, thanks for calling in and uh, sharing that. That is a common thing, uh, particularly as you get older. Let's go to Tim in Olive Branch. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. I got a question about my sister-in-law had emergency surgery like eight weeks ago. Her aortic valve exploded like the other guys did. Mm-hmm. And she, her surgery lasted like 13 hours. And she's having trouble with her vision. And they said her brain was in shock. Yeah. She's seeing double, can't focus her eyes. Yeah. So I, and without knowing all the specifics, I can just, you know, speculate a little bit, but usually like that, you know, the, the, the aortic valve is the main valve, uh, of the, of the aorta. The aorta is the main artery that comes off the heart to the rest of the body, uh, to feed it, to give, you know, to give oxygen to it. So when that, that valve blows up or it ruptures, uh, and it's damaged, you lose blood pressure. And some of the first vessels that come off that aorta go to the brain, the carotid arteries. The other thing that can happen, too, is you can break off, you know, one of the most common causes of damage to the aortic valve is atherosclerotic disease. In other words, you have these plaques that form 
uh, on the pipes inside your blood vessels, but they uh, they can form on that valve. So if that valve ruptures, little pieces of that can go downstream. And once those um, blood vessels get really, really small, like in the brain, then it'll block those. And the, the blood vessels to the eye frequently they can you can have that so you can have something called amaurosis fugax which is just that sudden visual loss and it's because you've blocked uh blocked that artery with a little cholesterol plaque so that may get better with time tim the other thing that might have happened is if the blood pressure drops significantly enough and unfortunately in an emergent situation you can't keep the blood pressure up quite like if this was a controlled uh replacement of the valve like they do in surgery So if the other thing, you know, you sort of said brain shock, it may be that what they're describing is the blood pressure dropped for enough time that she's had some damage to the brain tissue because you can usually you can't last more than about two or three minutes without blood flow to the brain. So that that's probably the two possibilities. All right. And good luck to you. I hope that uh, I hope she uh, she recovers from that. So that's uh, unfortunately one of those complications. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and you can reach us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to David in Grenada. Good morning, David. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to learn something here. Um, sure. Uh, my question concerns an allergy or allergies, and uh, I was just curious... If you are, uh, if you find yourself allergic to one thing, does that does that uh, mean you're going to be more susceptible to get allergic to something else? It depends, David. So, um, you know, when we say allergies, most people think of runny nose, sneezing, that kind of thing, watery eyes. Some people have allergic responses to things that they eat. Uh, some people have allergic responses to things that they breathe in. Some people have allergic responses to things that they come into contact on their skin. And some have all of it. So we call those atopic individuals. And there's other atopic diseases like asthma is one that sort of goes along with that. So if you have one allergy, it is possible that you might have an allergy to something else, particularly if we talk about things like pollen. Uh, now, a lot of people say dust, so it's the particles of dust, like what's in dust. In, uh, in cockroach, um, this is sort of nasty to think about this, cockroach excrement, particularly in bigger cities, is a big one. Or hotels, you know, there's uh, been cases where drivers, there's like, you know, every time I go into a hotel and spend the night, I just just hack and cough and sneeze in or wheeze in. So all those things can cause that. So back to your question, can you, does that put you at a little bit risk? Yeah, there is a little bit more risk, but it's all different from person to person. And it depends on that type of allergy. Uh, insect stings is a good example. So if you develop an allergy, and you can do this at any point in your life, to uh, to hymenoptera, to, to stinging insects like a wasp, then <clears throat> that doesn't necessarily mean <clears throat> that you're going to have an allergy to tree pollen. Um, it does mean that you might want to stay away from all flying insects like that that sting. So, yeah, right. it, it does put you a little bit more risk. Well, to be more specific, I'm I'm allergic to three different things, and I was just uh, I was just curious uh, if is it is it looking like or is it real probable that I will get allergic to something another? Yeah, it's it's po- I would say it's possible. Um, how old are you, David? Uh, 63. Yeah. So so probably it's not going to be just across the board, but it's probably because you know, your immune system is pretty much locked in at that point, And it can be tricked to thinking that something is a parasite, basically, uh, is a way to think about it. So when your immune system says, hey, this is a parasite, but it's really a, a piece of tree pollen, it has gotten tricked and overactive to the point where it's going to treat that tree pollen in the same way it would a worm. Um, and that's how a lot of these allergies work. And, uh, you can, again, you can develop it any time in your life. It's just hard to sort of predict that. I'm assuming, are you seeing an allergist yet or you plan on doing that? Well, well, uh, I have seen one before, Yeah. uh, but that was in a different state. And, uh, I mean, it'd be worthwhile, you know, a lot of times they can do testing to other things just to see. Um, but, uh, I'd say it's possible, but not, you know, some people, they only get allergic symptoms during a three or four week period during the spring when the tree pollen 
uh, inundates us, attacks us. <laughs> you can see it well, in the air. Well, the, the uh, reason I was asking that is because I know I'm allergic to three things, according to a blood test. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, here in the last week or so, it seems like I'm, uh, my symptoms are acting like I'm allergic to something else. Yeah, that... and and, uh, and and in particular, which is another question, uh, uh, I have a bad case of runny nose, which sounds uh, you know benign and all, but uh, when I lay down to sleep, uh, I can't sleep. Yeah. Is... So I was wondering, is there something I can take a real strong antihistamine or something for that? Yeah. So so runny nose is one of the symptoms of allergies, um, and there are a couple of things you can do. Probably the one that has the least amount of systemic side effects to the rest of your body is a topical steroid spray like Flonase, and it's over the counter now. So you Flonase, can, okay. Flonase. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know. I, I would do that every day or every night, rather, right before you go to sleep, and uh, it's not something that you can get used to or anything like that. So just one oh, squirt great. in each nostril. And uh, and don't don't sniff it back so much. Let it be in the front part of your nose because that's usually where oh, the really? problem is. Yeah, you don't want to. If you sniff it all, all the way back, it's going to end up in your throat. So don't do that. Oh well, I see. I thought that's what I, I thought that would be a better idea. Oh yeah. well, see, I, I did learn something. Point it straight back and uh, and squirt it. Uh, sort of bend your head head over and do that, and it'll go yeah. up in the in the places where it needs to. So okay, I'd try that. Well, uh, let me let me ask you one more thing concerning that. All right. Um, um, uh, is there any research on on uh, the reason people? I don't really know in the past, but it seems like allergies are real common now. Uh-huh. Where it seems like they used it used to be real common not to have allergies, but now it's just the reverse. It seems like to me. So I was just wondering. As I remember, like when I was going starting the school, I was given measles. Uh, vaccines and then you have you know have you have other vaccines like like the flu now and i was just wondering did that do you suppose is there any research uh connecting the two you you take a vaccine which tricks your you use the word trick you tricks your body into uh thinking one thing when it's the other and then years later 40 or 50 years later you get an allergy is there any connection do you suppose there, there's not one and it has been looked at extensively so with a vaccine it, you know it's not really tricking the, use, the immune system it's using the immune system so uh the aller- allergic response is a is a switch in the way that those um immune cells process the information and the vaccine uses a totally different system. So it's it's not tricking the immune system. It's the same way as if the immune system were, um, were exposed to something. That's how it works. So they have looked at allergies. Now, there is a lot of research that's um, out of Amish communities. When you compare Amish communities to other communities, and what you're exposed to early on probably has much more to do with it um, so, for instance, the Amish kids are sort of at an early age exposed to uh, a much more rural environment where they're out in the barn. They get a lot of different you know, bacteria that are out there and other animals. They tend to have less allergies and less asthma of other kids that grow up in similar situations, except that they don't have exposure to that outside environment. So that's one that if we shield, you know, a lot of our kids from that, you don't want them to get sick. But there's something about the the right kind of milieu, the right kind of environment where the immune system is trained up in the right way that you don't have those allergies. All right. Thank you, David. There's a lot of good allergic calls there. We're going to go to Sue in Beaumont, who's been so patiently waiting. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. I'd like to ask you about that measles outbreak. Yeah, it's a nasty one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and, and uh, I just can't, I can't fathom why parents would not vaccinate their children. It's just unconscionable that they would not give their children these life-saving vaccines. But um, I, I, I know that people had been saying for years that this, this doctor in England wrote a paper that he thought that vaccines caused the autism or something. And that's why people were not vaccinating their children. Right. But that was disproven. They disproved his everything that he wrote there. So it's not true. But I wonder, like, for people who, these children who haven't been vaccinated are infecting other people. Like, what about senior citizens that haven't been vaccinated, like, for 50 or 60 years, you know, against measles? And uh, could they get, how long does that, that vaccine last? 
So it is. Uh, so for particularly for the measles portion, it is usually a two dose vaccine. Uh, sometimes three in some um, situations. So it's a multiple dose. But generally, a- after you're an adult, you're thought to have immunity to that. Now, what we're seeing in Washington uh, is uh, herd immunity, basically. So base- you have to, particularly with measles, you have to get about 86% of the population immunized. Um, and that's that's considering that, you know, that nobody's going to move in or out of that uh, that population and because you do have a lot of people come in that haven't been vaccinated, that have been exposed to measles, measles is not eradicated around the world. You have outbreaks all over the place. Those people may come to the U.S. And for those individuals who haven't been vaccinated, particularly children, so that's uh, the ones that are at the most risk. And that's most of the cases that we're seeing are young children who were not vaccinated. Uh, measles is not like the common cold. Uh, unfortunately, this is, you know, one of the reasons I think why people um, don't understand the importance of vaccines to their fullest extent is because we've been so successful in treating a lot of these medical problems that cause so many complications. So measles certainly is not a benign disease. It's not like the common cold. Uh, it's not like just a, you know, a stomach virus. It can cause all kinds of complications. Uh, so, Sue, you're right. Uh, vaccines have been proven to be safe. Uh, the uh, it, they have had probably more research to to uh, drive that point home than a lot of other things. I mean, it's it, probably nothing else in medicine has had more research that's been targeted towards that. I'm a big proponent of that of, of vaccines. However, I got a lot of you know a lot of patients and a lot of um, um, families in my clinic that choose not to vaccinate. And a lot of them have very good reasons or at least concerns for that. So um, I think, you know, having a conversation of those and, um, you know, just having a conversation over what their concerns are and what the what the uh, data is to support that. You know, I always tell them we've had vaccines that didn't work well or they had side effects that were dangerous that were pulled. So we do that often, um, you know, if there's a problem. So. Uh, Sue, I think you're right. I would advocate that everybody get vaccinated. Washington, unfortunately, is an example of what happens when that goes down. And interestingly enough, I just heard this this morning, the state legislature of Washington, they've introduced a bill to uh, limit how easy it is to avoid vaccination. So there are some very uh, rare conditions and rare circumstances where we would not vaccinate. But for the most part, just about everybody can be vaccinated. So thank you, Sue. And uh, good talking to you. All right, we're going to go to Lester in Gulfport. Good morning, Lester. Good morning. How are you? Good, thanks. Man, look, I must say I enjoy your show. Listen to it all the time. Thank you. Okay. Look, I have a question. I was diagnosed with uh, DVT back in 1996. Okay. And I think about two or three years later, uh, the doctor tried to pull the cuminum to uh, see would the clock come back. And it did come back, so he told me I would have to be on it the rest of my life. I, I asked, uh, we just wanted to ask, is there uh, any surgery or anything that you can do to, uh, say, remove that place where the blood is clotting? Is there any cure for it, anything to come off? The, I mean, I just don't like taking pills. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. I, take, I take seven and a half uh, milligrams uh, three days a week, and the rest of the days I take five. Yep. So um, that's common, Lester. So it's uh, unfortunately, and for those who don't know, DVT, that's a deep vein thrombosis. So that's a blood clot in one of the the bigger veins. And I'm assuming this is probably in your legs because that's the most common place, right? Yeah. So the first thing after you've had a repeat clot like that is always in the back of the doctor's mind, they may not overtly discuss this with you. Uh, they are thinking, okay, what is causing this? Is there a blood disorder? You can acquire different problems with that clotting pathway like we talked about earlier to where Uh it's not working uh, to keep it thin and you're actually forming more clots. Some of those you're born with, some of them you can get when when you get older. There are lots of other conditions out there that put you at risk for clots. Uh, autoimmune conditions, or it's it's common with that. So they probably, you know, at least thought about that when they were looking at it. Unfortunately, yeah. you ask about is there a surgery? Can you get that clot out? 
So in some circumstances, you can go in and declot that vein, but usually that's not going to take care of the problem, and it actually may make things worse. Exactly. Uh, you can have more swelling with that afterwards. You can have, right. Um, right. certainly, you can have a setup for it to clot even more. Okay. Um, so it's 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 much more complicated. I wish, man, I, I wish I could give you something to say, hey, you can stop taking right. that medication, because like you right. said, right. Right. it's it's pretty difficult to stay on it uh and it can interact with so many different things and you end up chasing that inr a lot of times but that if and i i'm assuming that you didn't qualify there's a nut there's a number class of medications that actually is a lot more um stable with uh with you don't have to to get that inr uh and uh i'm i'm guessing that you didn't qualify for that? A lot of times insurance companies don't like to pay for it because it's a little bit yeah, higher. Right. Uh, no, they wouldn't pay for that one. Yeah. Coumadin is cheap. Yes. Yeah. And interestingly enough, Coumadin came from uh, rat poisoning. So they used okay. to use that to uh, kill rats. I, yes, I heard. Yeah. So it's, and they basically bled to death. So they, there was much higher doses of it. The rats would eat that and, right. um, and then, then they would uh, bleed to death. So, uh, that's sort of where it was originally looked at and developed. So, Lester, sorry I couldn't get you anything else to where you're not taking that, but right now it sounds like that's your best bet. Okay, thank you, Doc. Keep sure. Up. Thanks we for listen. calling. You're welcome. We're listening out here. All right, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. This is uh, Southern Remedy, and I'm Dr. Jimmy. The number to call if you would like to speak to us this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Annie, who's been patiently waiting. Thank you, Annie. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a, an observation and a question. Sure. I know Mississippi is often the most obese state in the nation. Uh, it leads to diabetes, heart disease, other physical problems, which we're also high in the nation. Right. Um. A few months ago, on one of the health call-in programs, the doctor said that uh, most Mississippians have an unusually high level of arsenic Mm -hmm. in their blood systems due to often the poisons used in our agricultural system. One of the side effects of low dosages of arsenic is my understanding is obesity. Could that be at the at the root of our problem health wise? And has anyone done any research to connect the dots? Yeah, so so that's true uh about the arsenic. So and I know this firsthand. Um so I took a year off between college and medical school and went to work for the Corps of Engineers in Vicksburg at Waterways Experiment Station. And because I was going to be doing environmental research uh, they do some background, just some baseline testing to see what you've if if you've had an exposure to something because you know if if you get exposed on the job they want to compare the same things. And interestingly enough, so the arsenic level was a little bit high. And of course, you know, as just finishing college, I was appalled at that. I was like, oh my gosh, is somebody trying to poison me? You know, arsenic. I thought about that old movie, Arsenic and Old Lace. I think that was Cary Grant. Good movie. Anyway. Um, but you're right. I, when, when I asked them about that, they said, no, it's, it's because of the, the use of this in the past, in particular in the 70s. Uh, if you grew up in Mississippi, you're going to be exposed to it because of the runoff of that. So arsenic was used in a lot of the pesticides. Now, uh, it's also true that Mississippi is one of the most, if not the most, obese state. Uh, we certainly see the effects of obesity uh, that you just mentioned with cardiovascular disease, um, with uh, type 2 diabetes in particular, and a third of cancers actually can be attributed to the lack of uh, activity and, uh, and obesity. Um, as far as the effects of tying those two things together, though, I'm not aware that that's even a side effect of arsenic. Arsenic can, in higher doses, in the small doses that we're talking about, it really doesn't cause any problems. Now, if you, obviously, if you can have arsenic exposure, and I've seen a couple of cases of this at UMC in the last 20 years or so, usually it's tiredness, you feel very fatigued, um, you can have swelling in the hands and feet, you can have fever, pain all over, particularly they'll say in your bones and muscles. 
Um, it can raise your blood sugar levels. It, the problem with arsenic is it does it affects so many different systems in the body at higher doses. But as far as causing obesity, I, you know, I don't think that that's that's one that we can blame it on. There are a lot of other things to blame obesity on, and the biggest one is we eat too much in Mississippi, and we love our food. But uh, hey, I'm right there with you. I struggle with that, and, and because of our state in the past. We were such a and you know an, uh, um, a, a state where everybody was outside doing something, and just we've transitioned to that. That's why the rest of the nation is really catching up to us, unfortunately, on obesity because they don't get enough exercise and they eat too many things, particularly processed fat, fatty foods, a lot of car- carbohydrate uh, carbohydrate rich uh, foods, and not a lot of fruits and vegetables. So. Um, that's, that's the, the skinny on that, if you want to look at it that way. But, uh, I'm not aware of any, anything tying arsenic per se to obesity, but, uh, we do appreciate that call. Annie. certainly it's out there. If you look for it, you're going to find small amounts of it. Um, some, somebody's going to be listening to this and say, aha, that's why that Dr. Stewart is so crazy. It's because he's had arsenic poisoning. So I'm not sure we can. Well, maybe you can't attribute it that. We'll, we'll just leave it like that. Hey, I wanted to touch on one thing, one email. Uh, this is from Joe. Joe says, my doctor recently uh, or he diagnosed me with um, osteoarthritis about 10 years ago, and now he's saying that it's probably time that I have a knee replacement from that, uh, and maybe even both my knees. So I thought that I saw a commercial with the, the uh, uh, about different treatments for this arthritis and wondered if that could be uh, something that I could try instead of the surgery. So thanks for sharing that with us. So osteoarthritis is a little bit different, and this is a common misconception. So people say, you know, I have rheumatoid arthritis or I have this type of arthritis. Osteoarthritis is just the normal wear and tear that our, that our joints take over time. And you can see this in any joint. The most common one is actually the thumb. And if you think about it, because you use your thumb in your dominant hand, if you're right-handed, to be right thumb, thumb left-handed, and left. And uh, because you use that over and over and over again, you can have some arthritis there. And even as you get older, you can have a little swelling in the, the last little joint in your fingers. You can have this in big joints, too, like knees or hips. So most of the time, that's the number one cause of having those to be replaced. Now, the autoimmune uh, arthritis conditions, uh, those are treated a little bit differently. Like rheumatoid arthritis now, if it gets to be bad enough, they'll treat you with a medication that sort of blocks that part of the immune system that's destroying those joints. So if you have, if you've been diagnosed with osteoarthritis, the treatment for that, if the joint gets just worn down to the point where nothing is is really uh, working and you're losing some mobility with that and you just can't stand it any longer with the pain and can't walk around uh, that at that point then surgery would be the only thing so it's a little bit different but not something that you can uh, not something that you can take for that in the same way that you could take if it was an autoimmune process. Hey, great time today talking to all of you. Thank you for your call. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from you, our listeners. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. You can join us next Wednesday at 11 for Southern Remedy and stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.